Exodus 3, 7 through 15. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Berzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to re be remembered throughout all generations. The word of the Lord. Sorry. We're in a series on the book of Exodus, and uh, last week we began looking at this passage that we just read, and the big question last week was, what does it mean to meet God? Uh, what does it look like to have an encounter with um, ultimate reality? This week, the big question is, what is this God like? Who is this God? Um, you know, this passage is one of the most famous passages in the Bible because in this passage, God tells us his name. In the Bible, names are important. Names are significant. In the Bible, your name is the public manifestation of your character, your essence, your identity to the whole world around you. So when God tells us his name, he's saying, this is who I am. This is what I'm like. This is important for all of us this morning. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this is a big deal because Christianity says um, there's only one true and real God, and it's this God. It's the God of the Bible. There are few things in our culture that sound more offensive than that statement because if there's one thing in our culture that defines our modern approach to spirituality, it's the demand for options, right? I mean, um, 
You know, recent uh, surveys indicate that even though formal religious participation is in decline here in America, that doesn't mean that people aren't looking for God. It just means that people are looking for God in different ways. If there's one thing that defines spirituality in our country, it's the demand for options. We live in a pluralistic world. And we live in a world that puts a supreme value on tolerance. That's the freedom of every person to define truth for themselves, including spiritual truth. So um, for someone to come along and say that this God is the one and only true God, there's nothing that sounds more intolerant, there's nothing that sounds more freedom-robbing than for someone else to come along and say this God is the one and only true God. For many people in our culture, that's a big problem. This passage helps us with that problem. But if you are a Christian, uh, this passage is important for you also because there are few things that will be more harmful and more destructive in your life if you have less than a full picture of the reality of who God is. If your view of God is deficient or distorted, then guess what? That's going to show up in your life. So with that in mind, let's see what this passage has to show us about who God is and what he's like. We're going to see four things this morning about God. We're going to see that he is, that he comes down, that he draws us up, and that he sends us out. Okay? He is, he comes down, he draws us up, and he sends us out. First, he is. Um, when Moses asks God name, God's name in this passage, God says, I am who I am. Very famous statement. Scholars have debated exactly what that means for centuries, but there are a few common themes that have come up, and one of them is this. When God says, I am who I am, the verb he uses is the Hebrew verb to be. Basically, what God is saying is, I am being itself. I am existence itself. I have no beginning. I have no end. For all eternity, I am. Another way that God gets this across is by appearing to Moses as fire. Normally, fire is dependent on some kind of fuel for its existence. But here, this fire in the bush was not dependent on the bush for its fuel. It was a self-existent, self-sufficient fire. God is saying, I am utterly self-sufficient. I am utterly self-existent. I depend on no one and nothing for my existence. Now, what does all of this mean? It means that you don't define God, he defines you. So for instance, look at what God said to Moses in this passage. Um, he's sending Moses on this dangerous mission and, uh, you know, go to Pharaoh, confront the most powerful empire on the face of the earth. It's understandable that Moses would be a little freaked out at this point. So he kind of starts arguing with God. Basically what Moses says is, um, God, this doesn't really work for me. Please don't be the kind of God that I don't want you to be. Do you see what's going on? As I just mentioned, one of the things that defines our modern approach to spirituality is the demand for options. We say everyone should be able to define truth for themselves, especially spiritual truth. All religions basically teach the same thing. Therefore, the most important thing is to find something that works for you. Now, that sounds really neutral, but I want you to think about this with me for just a moment. Um, for instance, uh, matters of social justice are at the forefront of our national consciousness right now, are they not? And one of the things that people have very rightly observed is that when it comes to social issues, not to act is to act. 
That there's no such thing as a position of real neutrality. You can say you're neutral, but to say that you're taking a stand of neutrality with regard to social issues really is to take a stand either for or against something. Now, if that's true in social issues, why would that be any less true when it comes to spiritual matters? The statement, all religions are the same, everyone should find something that works for them, that sounds very broad-minded, it sounds very neutral, but it is, in fact, an incredibly specific, highly particular doctrinal statement. It is a creed, whether we want to admit it or not. It is an absolute spiritual truth claim that's now putting itself forward as the truth claim that gets to trump all the other truth claims. Basically, it's saying my view of spiritual reality should be privileged over your view of spiritual reality. And by the way, when we say that the most important thing is finding something that works for you, that's, that is a doctrinal statement that is saying that whatever spiritual reality is all about, that it is primarily about satisfying your individual needs. So here's God, though, and when Moses asks his name, it's really funny, really, because God doesn't say, Moses, I am whatever you want me to be. God, God does not say, Moses, I am whatever works for you. He says, I am who I am. You don't define me. I define you. So, for instance, when we say that everybody should find, you know, whatever works for you, the most important thing is finding something that works for you, um, you know, that sounds great, but think about that for a moment. What we're saying is our reality should define God's reality. That's what we're saying. It's the exact opposite of that. Listen, don't believe something, you know, because it works for you. You should believe something because it's true. Because if something is not true, then ultimately, no matter how much it might seem like it works for you, ultimately, it won't work for you. Only if something is really true can it really and truly ultimately work for you. I mean, think, do you really want this kind of a God in your life anyway? Have you ever had people in your life who say things to you like, oh, please just let me in your life I'll be whoever you want me to be. I'll say, I'll tell you whatever you want to hear. I just want you to be happy. I just want you to love me. We have a word for that. It's called codependent. It's called sycophantic. Do you really want a God like that in your life to begin with? That is not a God who can change your life, and it's certainly not a God who's worthy of your worship. Friends, listen, I understand, you know, you may not like everything this God says, but at least that's one way you know that this God is real. This is a God who, who does you the courtesy of refusing to treat you like an idiot. He does you the courtesy of treating you like an intelligent, rational human being who's capable of critical thinking. This God does not pander to you with fuzzy thinking. He says, you don't define me, I define you. He's a God who is. And that leads to our next point, okay? Not only is he a God who is, he's a God who comes down. Because as I just mentioned, uh, scholars debate, what does it mean when God says, I am who I am? One of the other big themes that comes up over and over again when God says this is that God is saying, I am the God who is with you, and I am the God who is for you. That when God says, I am who I am, it's a statement of God's presence with his people and God's advocacy for his people. So that really comes out in verses 7 through 8. God says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, literally their oppressors, 
He says, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. God is saying, not only am I utterly self-sufficient and utterly self-existent, I am a God who actually cares about injustice. I'm a God who cares about suffering and oppression. I'm a God who cares about people. And not only that, I'm not just a God who cares about it. I'm a God who's actually going to do something about it. Because when God says, I have come down, there's various places in the Bible where God comes down. And it's always an indication that God is doing an intervention. Now, this is a God that our culture can really get behind. If, if, even if you don't believe in God, we can get behind this moral agenda, fighting injustice and oppression, alleviating suffering, caring for the poor and the marginalized, treating every human being like a, a unique individual with, with equal worth, value, dignity, and honor. We say we believe in the truth of those things. We believe in the importance of those things. We think those things are so obvious and so self-evident that we wouldn't even dream of questioning them. But why? There's a very important book that came out some years ago by a philosopher named Charles Taylor. It's called The Secular Age. Um, and it's a history of how the West became a secular place. It's one of the most highly regarded books in recent times. And in that book, Charles Taylor talks about something that he calls the personal package. Let me explain what that is. In the book, he talks about five areas, um, five ways that the world looks at things that underwent a massive shift as a result of Christianity's entrance into the world. So before Christianity entered the world, there were these five areas, and Charles Taylor says that the world, most people saw the world as a rational but impersonal place, okay? So on the one hand, the ancient world saw the world as a rational place. That is, it was an ordered world. It was organized according to very specific principles. But on the other hand, it was an impersonal place. That is, there is no person who's doing all the organizing of the world. The most we could say is that it's like a force, kind of like Star Wars, impersonal, okay? So Charles Taylor says five areas. Here's what these, this impersonal world said about these five areas. First, the body. An impersonal world said that the body and physical matter was less important than the world of ideas and spiritual reality. Second, history. An impersonal world said that history is um, like a never-ending cycle. It's kind of stuck on auto-repeat. Third, individuals. An impersonal world said that individuals are less important than the group or the tribe. Fourthly, choices. Uh, an, an impersonal world said that because history is a never-ending cycle, everything is fate, and your individual choices, they don't matter. Uh, fifth and last, emotions. An impersonal world said that if history is a never-ending cycle and everything is fate, your choices don't matter, then the reason we get so upset is because we're caught in this trap of fate. Therefore, emotions are harmful. Emotions are destructive, and, and we should seek to conquer our emotions and overcome them. Now, contrast that with the way we look at those five areas in our modern-day world. First, the body. We say that the body and physical matter, that that those things are, are good. We seek to improve those things through science and medicine and technology. Second, history. We don't think of history as a never-ending cycle. We think of it as a story because we say it's possible for us to make progress in history. 
Thirdly, um, the individual, we see the individual as being of supreme importance, and that every individual is a unique being with unassailable worth and dignity. Uh, fourthly, choices. We see, I mean, if there's one value that our culture really holds strongly to, it's this, this value of freedom, that everybody should be free to make their own choices for their own lives, that choices matter supremely. And fifthly, emotions. We, we intensely devote ourselves to the importance of emotions that we should seek to understand our emotions. We should seek to cultivate our emotions. Now, do you, do you see what we're saying? Those things seem so obvious to us. We, that's the way we see the world, and it feels so self-evident to us. But why? Charles Taylor, in his book, he points out that those five things, he calls it the personal package. He says that those things are in the world as the result of a sixth area that underwent a massive shift when Christianity entered the world. That, that what happened was the world went from being a place where everyone sees the world as an impersonal place to a personal place. Why did that happen? I am who I am. It's because of the God with a name, a personal God. It's because, it's because of a God who cares about people, who cares about individuals, who cares about human dignity. It's because when Christianity exploded into the world, it was a massive shift in the way people understand the world from being an impersonal place to a deeply personal place so that everything we've just talked about, all right, the goodness of creation, the progress of history, um, the value and dignity of individuals, the importance of choices, of free choice, the value of emotions, all of that stuff, Charles Taylor says that's like a package. He calls it the personal package. And he says that in our modern secular world, we have retained the package, but we've rejected the personal God who made the package possible. Do you see how ironic that is? Our modern secular world says that, that we have once again returned to a view of the world that says it's an impersonal place, just like the ancient world, impersonal, that this world is nothing more than the result of irrational, random, impersonal forces that collided and, and just managed to produce the universe that we inhabit. It's an impersonal place, and what's happened is we have retained the personal package but rejected the personal God that made the package possible. Now, here's why this is so important. I mentioned last week, if you weren't with us, that, um, you know, I wasn't a Christian until I was 30 years old. And one of the things that I really struggled with before I became a Christian was this idea that Jesus is the only way. I hated that. I thought, why can't multiple spiritual paths be equally valid? I didn't understand why, but this passage shows us why. Let me illustrate. Um, Stephen Colbert had Ricky Gervais on his late night show last year. Uh, Stephen Colbert, late night show host, he's known for being uh, Orthodox Catholic. Ricky Gervais, uh, not only is he a comedian, he is an actor, he's also a very outspoken atheist. And on the, the show, they had this conversation and they started talking about God. And at one point in the conversation, Ricky Gervais wanted to explain something about his atheism to Stephen Colbert. So he said to Stephen Colbert, you believe in one God, I assume. And Stephen Colbert said, um, in three persons, but go ahead. <laughs> Ricky Gervais said, okay, there are about 3,000 gods to choose from. So basically, you deny one less God than I do. 
You don't believe in 2,999 gods, and I don't believe in just one more. That is a brilliant argument. Not only is it, I mean, it's a wickedly funny interview. Go watch it. It's hilarious. But that's a brilliant argument, and it raises a very important question. If there are thousands of gods to choose from, how can anyone say that they have found the one true and real God? Well, let's do a thought experiment about that. How do you go about approaching this difficulty in other areas of your life? For instance, say you're searching for a car. What do you do? You jump online, bring up a web browser, you type car in the search field, and you hit enter. What happens? Thousands of options. How are you going to decide among those thousands of options? Well, we have this wonderful little tool called filters. What do you do? You start applying search filters. Make, model, mileage, year, add-ons. The more filters you apply, the fewer the options you have to deal with. Now, what would happen if we began to start applying search filters to our search with God? Let's take that personal package that Charles Taylor talks about, those things that we believe so deeply about this world that we, would, that we live in. What happens if we take that package and use that as our search filters and our search for God? What happens if we say, okay, I believe in the absolute reality of things like human rights, and freedom, and dignity for all people. I believe that those things are accurate statements about the world that we live in. What would happen if we were to take those things and apply those as our search filters and our search for God and then hit enter? There's only one result. I am who I am. It's the God with a name. It's this God, the God of the Bible. That is the only God that gives those things to you. This God is a God who is. And he's a God who comes down. He cares about people. He renews this world. He is in utter, absolute control of everything that happens. Do you know why we experience so much anxiety? Do you know why why we suffer from inordinate fear or pride or contempt or bitterness or self-loathing or shame? It's because we fail to remember who God is, that he's a God who's in control. You don't define him. He defines you. This God never says, oops. He never says, "Uh uh-oh, I didn't see that coming. Now what are we going to do? He never said, this God is in control. You don't define him. He defines you. And this is a God who cares supremely about people, about every individual in the world. He cares about you. And that leads to our next point. We've seen that this God is, and we've seen that this God comes down. But thirdly, he's a God who draws us up. What do I mean by that? If we were to just stop at the last point, if we were to just stop with a God who comes down and renews the world, that would be wonderful, but we'd be in big trouble. Why? It's because at the beginning of Exodus, if you were with us, one of the things we saw is that the Israelites were in slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt. They were enslaved. They were serving Pharaoh in Egypt. But then here in verse 12, it's really interesting. God says to Moses that when he's brought all of the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, he says, you, meaning all of you, that you shall serve God on this mountain. God says, when you're done serving Pharaoh, I want you to serve me. What's going on with that? We've been talking about this throughout the series. That word serve is one of the most important words in the Bible, and especially in the book of Exodus. That word to serve is a word that can mean work or it can mean slave, but when it's applied to God, this is a word that means worship. 
God is essentially saying that he wants to transform our slavery into worship, that that's what we're created for. Now, let me put this as simply as possible. If, if God is a personal God, a God with a name, if God is a personal God and every human being is created by that personal God, then our deepest need is to be in personal relationship with that God. Or we could put it like this. If the heart of the universe is a person, capital P, person, then the reason we will never feel at home in this universe unless we are deeply connected to that person who is at the heart of the universe. That means that no matter how hard we work on trying to fix this world, just fixing this world is not going to fix us because we're created for more than this world. We're created for God. So, for instance, Steven Pinker is a renowned scientist who's written extensively about how levels of flourishing in this world now are higher than at any time in history before now. That if we look at things like science, medicine, technology, agriculture, economics, levels of violence, that we are at a much higher level of human flourishing at this point in history than we've ever been before in the history of the world. And yet, um, psychologists and sociologists and cultural commentators and philosophers and writers uh, keep observing that in our world, in our late modern world, one of the most common experiences is this inescapable experience of emptiness. Very noted experience in our modern world. That we live in a disenchanted world. That's a world where God is not a meaningful reality. We keep trying to find things to replace God with, and yet nothing works. There are many writers who talk about this, many people who have noticed this. So, for instance, Julian Barnes is a, uh, an atheist writer. He begins one of his most famous books uh, with this remarkable statement. He says, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Or David Foster Wallace, I mentioned him a couple of weeks ago, very famous postmodern atheist writer, he was constantly pointing out how modern society is always trying to fill our empty hearts with things like television and um, drugs. Or T.S. Eliot, I mentioned him last week, another very famous modern writer. He once wrote that, that one of the earmarks of our modern world is that we are distracted from distraction by distraction. That's a great phrase, isn't it? We're distracted from distraction by distraction. What does that mean? That's like when you're distracted from TV by Facebook. And then you get distracted from Facebook by, like, YouTube or something like that. We're distracted from distraction by distraction. Friends, the, the emptiness of this world should be telling us something. There's an emptiness about this world that nothing in this world can possibly satisfy. Why is that? It's because we were created for worship. And if you worship anything but God, you're going to be a slave. We're created to worship God. But we are going to worship something. If you don't worship God, you will worship something else. You will serve something else. You will give yourself. You'll give your heart and your life to something else. And no matter what you give it to, one of the reasons, the reason that we experience so much emptiness and, and sadness and loss of meaning in our world is because we will give our hearts, we will give our worship to something, anything but God. And that leads to our last point. We've seen so far that God is, that he comes down, that he, and, but nextly, and I'm sorry, this is our third point. 
I got thrown off because normally it's three. Um, God is, God comes down, but, but we need to know that, oh, we just did. We did talk about how God draws us up. God says he wants to bring us up onto the mountain and worship him. Now, we need to go to the last point because here's the important question. God is, God comes down, God draws us up, but lastly, God sends us out. Here's the question. How do you know if you've really come into an encounter with this God? How do you know? One of the things that always happens when people come into a relationship with, God, with this God, when they really encounter this God, this personal God, is this God never just comes down and he never just draws us up, he always sends us out. So for instance, when Abraham, in Genesis 12, when Abraham meets God, God says, Abraham, I'm sending you out. I want you to go. I'm going to make you a blessing to all the nations. Or in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah meets God in the temple, um, God says, who will go for me? And Isaiah says, here I am. And God says, go. Or here in Exodus chapter 3, when God meets Moses on the mountain, was it just so Moses could stay on the mountain and have this wonderful, rapturous experience of the divine presence? No. God says, Moses, go. Go get your sisters and your brothers. I want you to go bring them out of slavery, and then I want you to bring them back to this mountain so that they can meet with me, so they can see me, so they can worship me. God never draws us up. God never comes down and draws us up without also sending us out. But here's the thing about this God. The mission you know, that God sends us in, it, the mission is always madness. I mean that from our point of view, the things God asks us to do, the mission God sends us on, it always looks a little crazy. It's always kind of dangerous. It's not really a safe mission. So for instance, God told Moses, Moses, I want you to go back to the place where you're wanted for murder, by the way, and confront the king of the most powerful empire on the face of the earth at that time, and then I want you to demand that that king immediately release his entire free labor force, which will automatically bring that whole nation and its economy to its knees. We, I think we can excuse Moses if he said, mm, maybe this isn't going to go very well for me. <laughs> the radical thing about this God is he never just comes down and draws you up without also sending you out. But, but when this God sends you out, it's never just so that you can go out and parade your own personal morality to the world around you. And I mean this, yes, God wants us to be holy. Yes, God wants the world to look at Christians and say, wow, there's something kind of different about those people. They don't use things like sex, money, and power the way the rest of us do. There's something kind of odd about them. But, but the reason God comes down and draws us up is to send us out. And when God sends us out, it's always about more than just having a really high standard of personal morality. In other words, when God calls you, he never calls you just to be a nice person. He calls you to come and die. There's something radical about God's call on our lives. When God called Moses, he said, Moses, you're going to go confront the most powerful empire on earth. You're going to speak out for justice. You are going to identify with the poor and the powerless of this world. It's not just being a nice person. It's not just having a high standard of personal morality. It's not just us being polite and civil and courteous to each other. It's going and dying. And when God calls you, when God sends you out, he will send you out on the same mission to basically do the same thing in this world. Now, here's the question. How in the world are we actually going to do that? The only way is to see that this God is the only God who's already done all of it for you. What do I mean? There's a place in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, 
where Jesus was having a rather heated discussion with some religious leaders. And they were very indignant with Jesus because he was challenging them on some things. And they said to Jesus, Jesus, don't you know who we are? We're children of Abraham. And at that point, Jesus uttered words that probably, doubtlessly, are the most astounding words that any human being has ever said. Because Jesus said, oh, you're children of Abraham? Let me tell you a little something about myself. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. They picked up stones to kill Jesus. Why? Not because he had bad grammar. They wanted to kill Jesus because they knew exactly what he was saying. Jesus was taking the divine name to himself. He was taking the name from this passage, the I am who I am. He was taking that name and he was saying, that's who I am. I am the God who is. That's what he was saying. And not only that, Jesus not only is the God who is, he's the God who comes down. Why is it that Christianity utterly transformed the way we see the world, not as being an impersonal place, but as a personal place? Why did that happen? Because nothing says bodies matter more than a God who took a body himself. Nothing says individuals matter more than the infinite, eternal God of the universe who at infinite cost to himself came to earth, took a body, died on a cross, and rose from the dead. That's who this God is. Friends, if you're a Christian, I'm not a Christian here this morning, this is what you really need to deal with. If you're exploring faith in Jesus, this is the issue you got to deal with. I mean, yeah, I know we have all kinds of questions, all kinds of difficulties and obstacles, but the real issue we have to deal with is not, do I like everything the Bible says? Of course we're not going to like everything it says. The issue is not, have Christians done horrible things in history? Of course they have. But you can't even begin to criticize the things the church has done without using Christian categories. The, the failures of Christianity does not invalidate the truth of Christianity. Those things are not the issues you have to deal with. The real issue you have to deal with is, is God coming to earth in the person of Jesus Christ? Did God take a body? die on a cross, and rise from the dead. That's the real issue. And unless and until you deal with that issue, everything else is a smokescreen. Friends, Jesus is the God who is. He's the God who came down. But even more than that, he's the God who draws us up. You know, when Moses was supposed to go out and on this dangerous mission that God was sending him on, um, understandably, he was freaked out. And God wanted to offer him a little encouragement, a little comfort along the way. Hey, I've got to go out and do this dangerous mission. God said, let me give you a sign. The sign was, Moses, when you've delivered the people out of slavery, you will all come back to this mountain and you will serve me. You will worship me on this mountain. That will be the sign for you. You know, Moses got the sign after he obeyed. We have something better. We get the sign before we obey because Jesus Christ served God on the mountain, the mountain of Mount Calvary, the mountain of the cross, because Jesus Christ is the God who came down. But he also said, when I am lifted up on the cross, I will draw all people up to myself so that when they see me on the cross, they will be drawn to me. I will draw them up to myself because on the cross, Jesus Christ lost his relationship with the Father so that we could have a restored relationship with the Father. Jesus Christ suffered the cosmic emptiness of abandonment by God 
so that you could experience fullness of the presence of God in your life, so that all the emptiness and the, and the sadness and the loss of meaning in our lives could finally and totally and ultimately be healed and restored. Dear friends, when you see this God, when you see the God on the cross doing this for you, when you see him identifying with you, the poor and the powerless, on the cross, then you begin to see the extent of your own spiritual poverty. Then you begin to see the extent of your own powerlessness. And then when that happens, then you begin to hear the words of this God saying to you now, go. Go get your brothers and sisters. Go tell them. Go show them how I have brought them out of slavery from all of the false gods that are oppressing them, from all of the false gods they've given their lives to. Go get them. Bring them back here so that they can meet with me too, so that they can see me and meet me and worship me and serve me and so that they can hear my words to them saying, go, I'm sending you out to the world as well. Let's pray.